today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Trudeau government is planning to announce a new new statutory holiday. The new statutory holiday would mark Canada's destructive legacy of residential schools. The government is eyeing two possible days, National National Indigenous Peoples Day, which is on June 21st, could be on June 21st, or Orange Shirt Day, uh, also a thought for September 30th. The recommendation for the holiday was part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. To talk more about all of this, Ruth Bradley St. Cyr is with us, Institute of Canadian and Aboriginal Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Ruth, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. Nice to talk to you. How timely is this with with everything that we seem to be talking about uh, uh, during this uh, Prime Minister's tenure? Uh, How much do you know about this? Uh, I know that it was obviously mentioned in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, What can you tell us about it? Well, it's uh, one of almost 100 recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did promise to implement all the ones that he can, the ones that are in federal jurisdiction. Um, So the government's been working uh, away on that. Um, This might be one of the easier ones, um, getting clean water, for example, to um, to Aboriginal communities. Um, I'm not sure if that one's actually in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, report, but that is uh, proving to be a bit harder than instituting a new national holiday. But I think the holiday is a, is a very good start to um, make people more aware of the issue and just to, uh, to make us think more about our history and how we treat each other and the way forward together. How do Indigenous groups feel about this? Well, uh, you'd have to ask them directly. I do not claim to speak for any of them, but um, the uh, Perry Bellegarde and the um, Assembly of First Nations is behind it, as far as I can tell. So um, that is, uh, is it, it's really at the very early stages right now, at the consultation stage with Aboriginal groups. So, Do you think this is going to happen? Um, I think it should happen. I'm hoping it happens. It's uh, it's a very good idea. If it was me choosing, I would pick September 30th because I think it will get more um, more attention then. I think in June 21st, although it's Aboriginal People's Day and also Summer Solstice, uh, I think it'll get a bit overlooked because it's just before Canada Day. It's just before Saint Jean Baptiste, so mm. uh, it's a bit crowded there and. Also, I think school children should pay particular, and teachers and anyone who works in schools should pay particular attention to it. Uh, and for that reason, I think September 30th is a much better date. Yeah, by the time we get to June 21st, I think schools are uh, yeah. pretty much shutting down for the summer, Nobody's aren't Nobody's paying attention. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, September 30th, obviously, uh, a, a, a lot more... Uh, uh, it makes a lot more sense, certainly, as far as uh, starting the curriculum off. Uh, yeah. Talk about the significance of these days, both on June 21st and September 30th. Okay, well, um, the Aboriginal People's Day, June 21st, has been, uh, for a while now, a day of celebration of Aboriginal activities. And so uh, that is probably already sort of set in the ways that people celebrate it. Um, Orange Shirt Day, though, is uh, the orange shirt, in, in, which is referenced, is uh, about a shirt that was given to a six-year-old named Phyllis uh, by her grandmother before she was taken off to residential school, and they, um, the school took away the shirt and never gave it back. So that's where the name uh, Orange Shirt Day comes from. 
do you think there will be uh, public support for this? I mean, certainly uh, I can't see too many people uh, standing in the way of a new statutory holiday. That being said, I can think of Remembrance Day and how some feel that, you know, it gets the whole idea behind the holiday gets lost in the sauce. How do we make sure this doesn't happen with this day? Well, that's, I think Remembrance Day is a really good uh, comparison in this case because um, even the the Legion isn't behind having it as a statutory holiday. It is, it's a bit tricky because if you want to participate in Remembrance Day activities and you're not off, then it's rather hard to do so. Um, sometimes it falls on the weekend, of course. Sometimes it even falls on a Sunday. Churches still celebrate that. Uh, whether it uh, falls on a Sunday or not, there's always a Remembrance Day service in uh, most churches that I know. Um, but the the idea of it, is it a day off, is a holiday uh, a day to go out and play and, and do stuff, or is it actually some, some holidays actually are more in the old tradition of holy days. That's where the name holiday actually comes from, but mm-hmm. a holy day where you would actually um, take time to reflect on um, the event in question. Good Friday is a good example of that. So um, it, I could see both sides of this, especially for Remembrance Day. Should it be a holiday? No, because then people won't participate. But we don't really have a way for people to participate if they're forced to go to work that day. So, you know. so do you think this will be like Remembrance Day in the sense that some people will get it off, some people won't? I mean, government, ho- government workers and such will, will no doubt get it, but, but it'll be up to the option of, of employers what they do? Well, I think um, it, it comes down to the provinces and whether they implement it into their own um, labor legislation. So probably not just left to the, the whim of employers whether it's off or not, but it, it goes down to the, the provincial level after that. So. Would there be resistance to this, do you think? Or would you think some are against this? Well, I think um, the idea that... I've, there's a lot of people who have trouble with the idea that we need to apologize for for residential schools if we had nothing to do with that. But, of course, uh, residential schools were not, as you were talking about before, not just the work of one man, Sir John A. MacDonald. They were the work of the entire government that implemented them, but all the other governments for a century after that, more Mm -hmm. than a century. So those continued until I think the last one was only closed in 1990 or some time like that. So, I mean, we're all implicated in one way or another, because when I was raised in the 60s and 70s, cultural attitudes were very anti-Aboriginal. Um, and growing up in Toronto, I didn't really see that a lot, but it's more obvious um, in northern Ontario, in western Canada, places where there are actually more Aboriginal people than Toronto. Um, recent cases fairly recent cases where police have been accused of uh, of uh, taking Aboriginal people. I think it was Saskatoon, for example, where they just mm. pick up somebody and dump them on the edge of town with no boots and no coat in the winter. and So that sort of thing. We've, we've had a lot of uh, bad racism um, against Aboriginal people for a very long time. So it's not just a John A. McDonald issue. But then there are people who don't don't understand that we are all implicated in the way that we, the society, the government, all of us have treated Aboriginal people up till now. But I think the tide is really changing uh, because people are becoming far more interested in uh, the cultural uh, 
side of Aboriginal groups like uh, um, a tribe called Red and and groups like that. Like the people are far more interested, I think, and I see a real cultural resurgence. So that's pretty exciting, actually. Uh, is it since uh, we're, we're talking about John A. and uh, I have to bring in the point about the statues, uh, mm-hmm. Victoria City, Victoria removing its statue of of John A. Rather than getting in the debate of the statue, and I'll ask you about that later. Uh, getting back to what I said in my commentary, is it wrong to solely blame John A. and does it give us some sort of comfort saying, well, it was that guy, it wasn't me. It was as if the rest of the country didn't follow suit, and as you said, for over 100 years. Yeah, no, he's, he's been pretty scapegoated. Um, there was actually a very interesting program uh, that I was listening to a while ago, several weeks ago, um, an episode of Ideas on CBC Radio mm-hmm. where they actually did a mock trial of Sir John A. at uh, Queen's University in Kingston on two specific charges. Uh, one of starving Aboriginal people who were made to move, and uh, actually, I think the other one was residential schools and all the fallout that's that's come from that. And I'm I'm not sure it was actually conclusive, but I mean, we all want a scapegoat, a bad person that we can hang stuff like that on, and it that was not the case. There, for one thing, he he is a man of his time, but not everyone at that time was racist either, so we can't really dismiss it in that way. Um, there were lots of people who believed in, in um, equal rights for everybody, equal rights for women, even though they didn't have the vote, and, and, and very social justice-minded people. There have always been people like that. To, to, so for one thing, to say he's a man of his time sort of dismisses all the people who weren't like that. And to say he's a man of his time also dismisses all the people who are still like that hmm. nowadays. So. I'm not suggesting uh, that, that, that this is, um, you know, an excuse for, you know, that's what happened back then. So that's yeah. the way, I mean, that's obviously not an excuse for it. No. But we can certainly learn from it. And it seems it's just convenient to blame him rather yeah. than accepting that's the way we all were. That's the way yeah. the country was back then. And again, you know, you say not everybody thought that way. Well, my goodness, enough of them thought that way that it went on for over 100 years. So I even think that's a stretch, uh, you know, to use that excuse. You know, again, I I think it's very difficult to judge uh, yesterday's uh, society through today's lens. That be and and then people uh, people remove statues and such as if it had nothing to do with the rest of Canada. And that's just wrong. Yes. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you there. I've worked for uh, four summers, I think, at Upper Canada Village and at Battlefield House in Stony Creek and at Gibson House in Toronto. So I would much rather, from that perspective, as a historic interpreter, I would much rather have an object there to talk about. So if the statue's still there, you can talk about what he did that was good, what he did that was bad. Um, but once you remove it, you're sort of removing that whole discussion. So, Well, yeah, and many say, well, they belong in a museum. Well, that's nice, but, you know, of all the people that go uh, that go to a museum compared to those that would walk past a statue at City Hall, I mean, there's yeah. no comparison. And I'm also suggesting that the people that would go and visit the museum are probably pretty aware of the history already going in, as opposed True. to somebody yeah. saying, hey, who's that guy on, on the front steps of our City Hall? Is this all political? Um, you know, John A. a conservative. Well, no, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think it's 
not partisan politics anyway, but but to back up just for a sec, it would be nice if more uh, legislative buildings, city halls, that kind of thing, had more historic interpreters, more tour guides who would actually help orient people. Uh, so I'm not suggesting all uh, historic interpretation has to be done at a museum. Uh, it's nice to have somebody tour you around. Like on Parliament Hill itself, for example, there are tons of statues. And there actually are, um, especially in the summer, people who will take you around and, and show you the different ones and talk about the different prime ministers. And there's a lovely one, my personal favorite one, of the, the women who got the vote, uh, mm. women declared persons. Um, so there's, in, in statues themselves, in monuments, in all that sort of thing, that is how uh, we um, sort of embody our history, not just in museums. So the pu that's public art that uh, really helps us learn about our history. So I agree with you. I don't, I don't think taking out the statues is uh, really the way to go. Canada is still quite young by world standards as far as a country. Is that why we're having this discussion? I mean, if you went to Europe, Italy, whatever, I mean, it's, you know, that's how you learn from history. Yeah, no, I, um, I don't think that's really the issue. I mean, if you look at Europe now, they're having, they're sort of having similar discussions about um, the refugee crisis and, and who's really German and who's really Hungarian and, and all that sort of thing. So, and there is in a lot of that discussion an underlying racism as well, that you have to be, you know, a thousand years um, family history in Germany to be German or... Mm. Or Hungarian or whatever, but it's uh, it's it's part of the same sort of uncomfortable discussion: who belongs, who doesn't belong, and and how do we define ourselves? So I think all countries really go through that. And if we remove the statue, do we have that discussion? Other than the day it's removed? No, no. I think that is. I think it's terribly short-sighted. Yeah, I do too. So what happened? Uh, getting back to the, the the statutory holiday, what happens now? Where what process is this? Well, it's still at the consultation process, and there are lots of different Aboriginal groups to consult with about that. Um, so they, I'm sure, will all have different opinions. But uh, I'm hoping that we actually get to to have this this day of remembrance um, at some point in the near future. Ruth Bradley St. Cyr has been with us, Institute of Canadian and Aboriginal Studies, University of Ottawa. Ruth, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. With legalized pot around the corner, various municipalities, including Richmond Hill and Owen Sound, are considering... Uh, just not selling it and making themselves a dry municipality. Are we going back to the age of dry counties, to the days of prohibition? Let's bring in Ivan Ross Verana, cannabis expert at Hill Knowlton Strategies, recognized as an industry expert in the field of medical cannabis and the emerging of the legalization of cannabis, and is on the line with us now. Ivan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. Are you surprised that some communities are, are talking about opting out of this? Not, not really. I mean, I think since the provincial government, you know, offered it as an option, I think it's reasonable to have a discussion about it. Uh, it wouldn't be my advice to opt out, but I think, you know, it's worthwhile having that discussion. Uh, what is the option that the progressive conservative government is offering here? Apparently, it's a one-time uh, situation where you can ask and, and get out of it. What does that mean? Well, I think it would just be that the municipality would put in a bylaw saying there's no bricks and mortar uh, cannabis stores allowed in our area. 
and that would be it, and that they could do it one time. So I, I believe what they're saying is after the election, uh, you would have a period between now, uh, between October 17th and April 1st, uh, to opt into that. So it's not a case of two or three years now down the road, you can say, no, I want this stuff out of here. Yeah, no, I don't think that's what I understood, yeah. I think it's, it's within that period when the, the whole system is going to be getting set up. So what are the pros and cons of this? You said you didn't, you didn't agree with it. Why don't you agree? Well, I, just, I think it's a viable and a reasonable economic opportunity, A, for the municipality. And I think what you want to do is we know people will be accessing cannabis anyway for recreational purposes. So why not control it? Why not help eradicate the illegal market and have a place where people have access to go to it and to get that legal product, product that's quality controlled, where there's safety and security uh, in storing that product? And I think even if it's a small municipality and it's only one storefront, uh, I mean, I think there's an economic opportunity, whether it's five jobs, that can rehabilitate a little bit. I'm not saying it's a magic bullet for economic development, but I think it's something that could certainly help. So the opportunity for the municipalities is in the, um, obviously, uh, the royalties they could receive from this. Yeah, or I think just along the property taxes, you know, dealing with uh, space that was maybe not uh, utilized. Uh, from that. So, and I think there's, you know, some legitimate jobs to be had at it. This does remind us of the the days of prohibition. Um, Can you stop this or will this just create an underground economy within those communities? Well, that's what I'm concerned about. I mean, I think we would have to look at it really closely, but I think if at the end of the day, people can't get access to recreational cannabis and they're not willing to drive to another sort of municipality that offers it, then it's going to go underground. And that market will be served by the illegal market. Uh, would the employment and the uh, f- uh, fiscal advantages, it, w- would that be enough to make a, for a deal breaker for these municipalities? Would that be enough to push it through, do you think? Um, I, I guess... We or is it moral grounds? <laughs> well, I, I'm sure it's both. And I, and I like I said, I, I think it's worthwhile a discussion. And the economic opportunity, I want to be clear, like I'm not saying it's going to revitalize any sort of downtown core municipality but i think there's a benefit to it for sure um and and i think it's an area where the municipality can benefit from an economic i just don't know what the size and scope would be but if you're you know, providing a storefront and there's taxes being paid and there are jobs uh, for people being employed i think it's a viable option to consider what do you think municipalities main concern is right now before this comes down well, I think it's just clarity around the rules and how it's going to get allocated and what the actual licensing scheme is going to be from uh, the provincial government. I think once uh, you know the provincial government starts holding their consultations and that information starts coming out, I think that will help uh, municipalities then make a better informed decision. Uh, what about law enforcement costs? Do we anticipate those going up? Uh, personally, I don't think so. I do think it's hard to read, but I think the law enforcement costs were already there. Um, and I think, again, that's what the viable option is. If you have a, a site that's controlled and licensed by the government and watched over by the municipality, then I think you can legitimately then take those costs that would be looking to enforce the illegal market and spend that money elsewhere. Uh, Owen Sounds counselor, one of Owen Sounds counselors, Richard Thomas, has been vocal on this. And uh, I didn't realize this, but I guess Owen Sound was one of the last communities uh, the last dry communities 
uh, in uh, Ontario. He says prohibition lasted in Owen Sound till about 1972, and it was the wettest dry town around. <laughs> Alcohol was driven underground, and it made criminals of otherwise law-abiding citizens. Mark Twain said it best when he observed that prohibition just makes it more attractive. That's what's happening here, except it was neighbor against neighbor, and even some families were driven apart, half of them teetotalers, the other ones wanting to drink. Uh, are, we, are we experiencing the same thing here? Is, is this similar to the days of prohibition and alcohol? I, I absolutely think so. I mean, we're ending an 80-year prohibition, or 90 years now, I guess. And so, yeah, we're going to have these concerns, for sure. And I think it's very similar to what we did with alcohol. Uh, he goes on to say cannabis is a bit different, but not that much. At the end of the day, any community that tries to extend the prohibition is really going to achieve nothing at all. It was an epic failure for Owen Sound, and I hate to think we're going down that same route again. What happens if you start this way? Uh, is it only a matter of time before uh, there's there's pressure to change this and, and you're, you're merely dragging it out? Or, or are there... You know, communities that legitimately don't want any part of this and, and, and citizens feel the same way. Well, I, yeah, legitimately, I think it's a very a legitimate concern and an option for them. I think the one thing you're right, cannabis is not necessarily the same as alcohol because it's also a medical product. You can use it for medical purposes. And so we're going to have to reconcile that fact with the recreational market. So if I'm in Owen Sound and there's a prohibition on it on the recreational side, but I'm growing at home for medical purposes, it's going to create a really weird kind of false dichotomy between the two, right? And it's not going to be very clear. Uh, so I think they're going to have to work that aspect through also. It's amazing how similar it is. He goes on to say, uh, in the early days of the 20th century, alcohol prohibition, there was a mail-order liquor market with Ontario <laughs> yes. buyers turning to the provinces where alcohol was still legal. A doctor would write a prescription for a pint of alcohol a week yep. because you were suffering from the vapors or such yeah. an ailment you would place your order very much like marijuana now. This does seem very much like a mirror image, just a different product. Well, it's fascinating, absolutely. I think that's a great example because, you know, you, we don't have to look too far back in our history about how we sort of tackled these issues before. And so I think I would hope there's a lot of lessons to be learned on both sides, uh, and that's what we consider. Your thoughts on uh, the Ford government changing what Kathleen Wynne's uh, plan was. Uh, they were going to have 40 stores open by... Uh, uh, October 17th, I guess, although uh, from what I hear, there was only like three or four or a handful of stores that were even moving forward, that there was no way they were going to be ready for this. Uh, obviously, it wasn't a priority for the last government. I don't think it's a priority for any government, really, at this point, from a provincial standpoint. Um, that being said, what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, the LCBO system that Kathleen Wynne had suggested uh, versus a mail order uh, through uh, government agencies and then private distribution? Well, I, you know, there's no question I'm in favor of the private distribution. And I think, you know, with the Ontario model in both cases, uh, whether it was the Liberals or the Conservatives, you had a, you had a wholesaler will still be in there. So the Ontario cannabis stores will still purchase the wholesale product and then sell it on to the private uh, retailer. And what I like about the private retailer is, A, the government will license them, so there's going to have to be some certain standards uh, affiliated with getting that license. But I think it will allow uh, access to be increased throughout the entire province. Uh, I know the Liberals had a very uh, staged incremental program, but I think you know if you want to tackle the issue of access and the illegal market, which will take time to work out, 
you have to be able to provide that access. And so I think, you know, for people living in rural communities, for instance, if you have that store that you can go to, uh, it, it will help eradicate the uh, illegal market. So I am a fan of the, the private model. Which system do you think is more profitable for the province? <clears throat> well, that's an excellent question, and I think it all depends on how it gets developed. And so I would like to understand a little bit about how the licensing will work, uh, what they're looking for. But the OCS as a wholesaler will already sort of be setting the prices, so they'll be able to make some profit off of that. And so it's a question of, okay, well, you know, what do we have to take? What are our costs of actually building the stores and then um, uh, employing the people versus letting the private sector, but we're still setting the price. So I think there's no easy answer on that, what will be profitable Um, for either one. I think only time will tell. Uh, Obviously, though, not the expense of lining up however many stores they wanted to have going. That's right. Yeah, I mean, because really, you're you're basically duplicating what the LCBO is. Because I mean, they can't sell them together; they nope. had to be sold apart. So That's you're basically right. building a series of stores like the LCBO. That must save the government money, no? Yeah, that that would, and that would be a large capital cost savings for sure. Um, is the LCBO happy about this? Are there unions? Because clearly, there was lots of jobs for them. As you know, we're watching literally over time. I'm guessing the LCBO. Or the cannabis version of the LCBO double in size, just like the LCBO? Well, I think, I guess, um, you know, I, I think there's some uh, resistance to that because I think they did have stuff being lined up. But, I mean, that's why we have a democracy, and it's totally within the rights of this government to, to change that since they got elected. Uh, so, I, you know, I can understand that a lot had been invested on trying to figure out these stores and, and you know, hiring had started to happen. Uh, so, yeah, I would think for their members, it's, it's not the outcome that they would want. Uh, people have been talking about uh, cannabis tourism in Canada. Explain that. W- w- uh, how much advantage is there from a tourism perspective? Well, I, I mean, that I find fascinating. I mean, if you look at Uruguay, which was the first country to legalize, I mean, there wasn't a lot of tourism in from neighboring countries like Argentina and Brazil. Uh, I know in the U.S. there was a lot of talk about people heading to Colorado just specifically for that purpose. Uh, and I mean, that's, you know, a difference between states. Uh, I think we'll see a little bit like, you know, like a, a town like Vancouver, there'll probably be people coming across a little bit. Um, but I don't think you're going to see as much tourism as people believe it, right? I think once it's there, I mean, certainly people that come over to visit Canada and see our lovely country, I mean, they'll certainly take a look at it and maybe see, okay, well, let's give it a try. But I, I think the tourism specifically to become, uh, you know, and to, to enjoy cannabis uh, will not be top of mind. Just like, you know, Amsterdam was in the 70s and 80s. I mean, I, you went there for a whole host of reasons. And because it was decriminalized, people then decided to check it out is what I would argue. Overall, that's what the numbers tell It almost appears a little bit like gambling. Way back when, when uh, no one did it other than Vegas, it was like, oh, we need a casino. We need a casino. Then it seemed that they were popping up everywhere. everywhere and now no one cares. There's no value to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I, I guess there'll be a case made when it's brand new and legalization occurs, but I, I, over time, and I think within the U.S. too, you have lots of states going legal and you have uh, medical regimes being put in place. So, I mean, that would be the natural tourist draw for us. Uh, I don't think it'll be a top-of-mind tourist attraction. What? How will government regulation influence that? I mean, it, will the government put an end to that? I mean, there's all sorts of weird sort of ideas in regard to tourism. And, and you know, you look at the winery industry and tours and so on and so forth. Uh, there's a lot more to it than just the actual product itself. Can you see that developing around cannabis? Um, I, you know, I, I know companies are certainly talking about it, but I think because of the restrictions federally, 
and the restrictions that provinces are, are placing on it. Because again, it, you know, the Ontario government was clear about where you could actually uh, smoke this if you were going to smoke it. Um, so I, I think it, it'll be a little bit different. I mean, maybe the tour would be come see how it's grown and how we process it. Um, do you get a, a sample after that? I, I wouldn't be possible to do that because the distribution regimes are very clear. Uh, so I, I think that would develop maybe over time, but it wouldn't be the immediate reaction that I would expect. So you don't think this is going to be a part of tourism commercials like, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> Come to Canada, like Marineland. You know, you see some great shots of you know, Ontario Lakes and, and the CN Tower and all this sort of stuff, Niagara Falls, and then a guy puffing on a joint. I mean, do you see that coming? No, because, yeah, I don't. And I'll tell you why. On the advertising side, I mean, the federal government. Yeah, there you go. And it's very strict, right? So we can't uh, have a background of the scene tower and somebody smoking a cannabis cigarette. That being said, won't that sort of law nip into all of these entrepreneurial ideas for a tourism market? Well, I, yeah, I think if they have to understand the regulations, um, you know, certainly the smart guys will figure out how they can benefit from it. Uh, but I think it's it's a... Thing, it's an issue that needs to be tested over time as the market matures. And a lot of these companies and a lot of these entrepreneurs are having their plates filled with other ideas on just getting the industry up and running. So I think the tourism might come, but I don't see it top of mind right away. What do you do with the dispensaries that are already open and playing in that gray area and that are theoretically illegal? I mean, uh, the government says uh, that they're going to open this up to privatization, but if you've got any sort of other background in this, uh, that could be an asset. On the other hand, if you've got a conviction, that isn't going to be an asset. So where does it leave? And and Hamilton's a prime example of this. There's a ton of illegal dispensaries right now. Um, What happens to them? Do they all well, of a sudden get, you know, uh, well, you're kicked out of the circle, you have to join the end of the line, or do they get, do they, do they advance to the front of the line for breaking the law? I, I don't think, I think it would be hard for any government to allow them to advance to the front of the line. Uh, what I'm encouraged about, though, is that, you know, the, the government will have consultations, and I do believe in these types of consultations. So I think that's an issue that needs to be discussed, but it's clear the law is being broken. It's not gray whatsoever. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of how the industry developed in Canada was thanks to advocates uh, who took these various issues to the courts. But, I, you know, there has to be a distinction about uh, people who have been playing on the side of the law. And there's a lot of these education centers that were waiting for distribution to happen. Uh, they didn't break the law. So there's a vital concern to that. And, uh, you know, it has to be considered. So I guess, you know, it all depends on how the government sets that framework up. I would say, though, if you've been convicted of running a dispensary, I think that would... Um, uh, hinder your uh, application afterwards, but it still remains to be seen. Uh, is this is this another avenue because we're not ready, and the other system because of the election and so on and so forth uh, just hasn't really there hasn't been a lot of energy put into it. Uh, is is this a delay to allow the government more time for storefront stuff, or that we just weren't going to be ready for October seventeenth with distribution? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, all the provinces are in some form that way. Some provinces are more advanced than others and will be set to go. But again, I think, you know, a delay of like eight months, uh, six months is sort of reasonable. We have to figure this out. And there are enormous challenges and, of course, opportunities with this. So I would, you know, we, we do have to take the time. I'm glad the October 17th date is set in stone and it's coming. But I would say, you know, after that, if we don't have all the storefronts in place, I don't think it's a, it's going to break us. Uh, life will go on. 
Uh, and, you know, the black market, the illegal market was not going to be eradicated overnight either. So I think it's something iterative uh, that we have to figure out. And it was the same thing we used. We talked about prohibition at the beginning. I, it was the same thing with prohibition. It took time. Uh, and clearly the illegal market still flourished after that, and things got worked out. Any concern about, although we've talked about the private dispensaries, any concern about mail-order recreational cannabis, or is this just a, a rubber stamp of what the medical system is? Well, I think it's going to be the same as what the medical system is, and I, and I do believe you know the government will have an opportunity, but they'll also be liable to create a system uh, that protects privacy and ensures products get delivered. Uh, and that people sign off and are of age of that. So I think, I, you know, I'm maybe an optimist on this sense, but I think it should work fine. Ivan Ross Verana has been with us, cannabis expert at Hill Knowlton Strategies, recognized as an industry expert in the field of medical cannabis and the emerging uh, legalized cannabis industry. Ivan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. As always, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada's Wonderland is getting a new coaster. It's called the Yukon Striker. It'll be the longest, the fastest, the tallest dive coaster in the world. In spring of 2019, uh, you'll get to separate the skin from your face by riding it. Let's bring in Grace Peacock, Director of Communications for Canada's Wonderland. She is with us now. Grace, thanks for taking the time to join us. To join us. I've seen you on media all over the place today. You must be busy. I've got, yes, it's it's a great day for us. I do not mind it at all. <laughs> so we've been to Canada's Wonderland already this year. Uh, I was up there for the media day. The kids have been back since. Uh, and they were telling me that something was being built there. Uh, when I showed them the, the, the video that uh, you guys have put out, uh, they were freaking out to say the least. Tell us about this coaster. Yes, well, it's been, it's been a hard secret to keep because if you've been in the park, Dive roller coasters are massive, and so the footprint for this thing is just all over the place. And anybody who paid a little attention knew something was going on. And um, the biggest piece and, like, one of the most, the best aspects of this is we've got an underwater, underground tunnel. So this thing is going to take you 90 degrees down at 130 kilometers an hour straight through that tunnel. We had to build it over the off-season, and then we've just had it covered up this whole time. The tarps finally came off today, and everybody can see this massive piece of track sticking out there. So we're working away at building the rest of it. So what can we see today of it if we were there? So we've got a construction site where we're currently building the station, and there's pieces of track and things, the transfer tracks there. But the tunnel is the most obvious piece because the lake that's sort of underneath Vortex if you know that ride, mm. is where we've built the entrance to the tunnel. And then it pops out later on at the hill by Vortex. And so over the winter, we had to install the track that was in there because it was a difficult thing to do. Um, but it's clearly visible now. So everybody's poking over the fence to look and you know, <laughs> very shocked at how big it is and trying to imagine this, this ride when it's ready next year. So why the tunnel? Is this just part of the attraction or is the thing just so dang big you couldn't put it all up in the air? Some of oh, it had no. to go underground. Yeah, no, most of it will be in the air and it's going to tower over Vortex and that whole area, which we're actually now going to be calling Frontier Canada. But it's the, the tunnel is just an added unique element. This, this coaster, uh, as you mentioned, is world record breaking and we wanted it to be, you know, 
know, a very interesting ride for people. And part of what makes it interesting as a as a dive coaster, by definition, the trains themselves offer a crazy experience because they're floorless. So your legs are dangling down. Oh just, man! Just the track beneath <laughs> you. Yeah. And I then, got goosebumps <laughs> just hearing that. And it's stadium style seating. So we've got three rows of eight, and each row is a little higher than the next. So everybody is going to have this amazing view. So everybody's going to see you go over the top. Yeah. When you do come over the top. The train actually holds. It will, I, I noticed so you're, that. You're sitting there hanging for three whole seconds, which will be the <laughs> longest three seconds of your life, I'll tell you, before finally the brakes release and then you fly down at 130 kilometers an hour. It's going to be great. So talk about the cars themselves in each unit. And, and, and are we looking, is it like a roller coaster train? Is it like the Leviathan? What, what, how, do you, how would you describe this? Yes, this is a bit different. We have um, our, our POV videos in our trailer are out on our website if people want to have a look. And you can actually experience what it's like because we have this point of view as if you were sitting in the front seat. You can see the entire track and what the whole ride is going to be like. Um, but this, this thing is wide. It's very wide. So it's, like I said, three rows of eight. Uh, Leviathan, in comparison, has a floor. It's, an, it's enclosed, and it's just four, four riders per seat, per row. Right. Um, but this thing, because it's so massive, the track has Is there to be four massive. in a row in the Leviathan? Oh, that's yeah. right. There is, too, I, isn't is. there? Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, maybe I had to think about that. But, yes, yeah, there is. But because these trains are so big, the track is, is really big, too. The track is about 50% larger than Leviathan's. So, we, like I said, you couldn't, it was really hard to hide this thing because we <laughs> had these big pieces of track all over the place. But secret's out, and now everybody knows. So when you go over the top, there's eight people in your row. That's right. Yep. Holy smokes. And, and sorry, how many rows of eight? Three. Three so rows 20, of eight in each car. Four riders per train, and then we have three trains. So the capacity on this thing's great. So p- people are going to be moving through. Like, you know, everybody talks about lineups. Yeah. But this is going to take the pressure off a lot of our other rides and also get a lot of people going on this one, too, when we open. All right. So what's a dive coaster? What does that mean? So the dive coaster is really uh, speaks to that drop element. Straight and down. That, and the hang time that you get. Yeah, well, over the top, right? So you're just, you really, you're, you're right up against your harness, right? Because you're just <laughs> over top of a 90 degree drop. And that's even steeper than Leviathan's. Leviathan's drop is currently 80. So, yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's bad enough. <laughs> I remember crazy. going on that thing and I honestly felt like I had to keep my mouth closed or my cheeks <laughs> were going to fill up with air like a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> and how it's, fast does it go going down? Um, uh, I'm not sure of Leviathan speed right now. Um, it is, I do believe it may be faster than, um, than Yukon Striker, but Yukon Striker as a dive coaster oh, I see, yeah, which is saying, the yeah. fastest in the world, right? Yeah. Wow. It's, it's going to be amazing once it's up and running and the novelty wears off, which one people like the most. I mean, will this, st- this still will be the premier coaster simply because it's longer, higher and, and I, faster, I, right? Yeah, I think it, just the experience. And they say too, because of the weight, again, the seating, if you go back to the seating, every seat is going to offer you something different. Um, if you're in the middle, you're sort of hugging the tracks. So that's probably the safest area, like in, if you're scared. Feeling <laughs> safe. Yeah. yeah, right. Or or you can be in the front and, you know, Daredevil right at the front hanging down. You're the first person that's going to dive down into that tunnel. So so would the people who are on the either end of the row of eight, would they be even on the track or would they be over the track? No, nope, they're hanging off the so, side. So they're off the side of the There's track. There's a track beneath, beneath oh, them, exactly. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, how long is it going to take to build this thing? When did you start it? What's, how long is it from beginning to duration till, till end? Right. So if we go back um, a while now, um, you may remember our stand-up roller coaster, Skyrider. Yeah. 
that got taken out a few years back. So we've been using the land there um, and also building up up and over. So we've got the land and mo- most of this coaster, because it's it's going to be high up, we're just sort of building over the existing park that's there. So, But this had to start way back, I'd say, um, late uh, 2017. And uh, we started on the tunnel in January, and it's just been ongoing. So um, we're, we're looking to have the trains up and running uh, for early testing in March, and we're going to have the first public ride uh, mid-April. How do you decide what to build? Um, I think it's just a matter of looking at what guests are interested in, uh, what's doing well in other parks. Um, we personally um, really like this manufacturer. It's um, Bolger and Mabillard, B&M for short. And we ha- currently have two B&M roller coasters already, Leviathan and Behemoth. And they're known for making um, top-notch, world-class roller coasters. And where are they from? They're from Switzerland. Right, yeah. Yeah, and so they designed they, they designed dive coasters. Um, and we were, we're actually very lucky to have three B&M coasters in the park, and that's going to make us even more of a destination for park enthusiasts. So I think we're going to see a lot of traffic, uh, visitors coming from, you know, different countries from across in, in the States just to come and ride these B&M roller coasters. Wow. Um, so w- what is the attraction to Wonderland? Is it the coasters? Because there's an awful lot of them. <laughs> yeah, we do have a lot of And actually, now this will be our 17th. And that's going to place us second, we're tied for second, for um, the amusement parks in the world that have the most roller coasters. Um, and, but I think really, we're, we're really bringing in a lot of events and things too. We have events happening all throughout the season. And the other piece of the big news that's happening next year is we're going to be extending our season into the winter. So we're bringing in Winterfest for November 2019, and we're going to transform this place into a winter wonderland holiday event with ice skating, we're going to freeze over the fountain in front of the mountain, we're going to have live holiday shows, sparkling lights, Christmas trees, a 70-foot tall Christmas tree that we're going to have a nightly lighting ceremony for. It's going to be magical. You know, I was thinking to myself, how do you guys do this when your season is so limited because of where we live? It's not open in the winter, but this is a great idea with Christmas. Now, will 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 the other parts of the park be open or is this like a separate con, you know, event sort of thing? Some areas won't be open, um, but uh, the areas that we're going to define, we're actually going to have some rides operating as well. The big coasters won't be operating, right. but the ones that we can have running, um, dependent on weather, um, will be up and going. And we expect to have a list of those rides available closer to opening date. All right. Uh, how much does this thing cost? Can, we, can you tell us? I can't disclose the amount, but I can let you know. Back in 2012, um, when we opened Leviathan, at the time we were able to disclose the amount, and that coaster cost $28 million U.S. This one is more expensive, yeah. plus in the same year we're also la- launching this massive you know, Winterfest event. So combined next year 2019 we're making the biggest capital investment in our park's history so how much does the the christmas thing extend your season how long is your season so currently we close after halloween Um, in the fall we bring in camp spooky for the kids during the day and then we have our halloween haunt program at night um so we close down after um i think it's um october 28th this year maybe Mm -hmm. um and then we're done until April. Right. Um, lots is still happening behind the scenes during the off season. But now, starting next year, November 2019, uh, we're going to open back up. Um, and that, I think it's going to be Friday nights 
and Saturday, Sunday afternoons and evenings, mm-hmm. Winterfest event. And then around the Christmas time, we're going to go daily. So it will close for a period after Halloween and then reopen for the Christmas events. That's right. Yep. We're going to transform the park. Uh, what has the response been from this so far? Well, I've been out in the park like all day, and people are just floored. They've, we've got big posters up. Like I said, we've uncovered the, the tunnel where you can see the track, and everyone's just so excited. Um, they can't believe the size of the track. They're trying to imagine picturing this thing here. I think, I think people are really going to love it, and they're thrilled that it's a, a world-class dive coaster. And, um, and Winterfest, too. I've, people have been saying, you know, Wonderland's begged for a winter event for years, and now we're, we're happy to finally say it's here. So I think, I think our guests are going to be pleased. And this, is part, this coaster is part of a new area you're opening up, correct? Yes. So Frontier Canada is actually a bit of an origin story because it was originally planned for the park's opening back in 1981. And um, it was going to be themed to the Klondike Gold Rush of Mm. the late 1890s. You know, so gold prospectors and mining towns and things like that. And um, it got postponed and then it just got shelved indefinitely by the company that owned it at the time. And um, we have all these great history books with these original concept drawings. And a couple of years ago, we we made a decision to start going back to our Canadian roots because you know we're Canada's Wonderland. So if people have been noticing that we've had we've been starting to name our rides Canadian themes yeah. this year. It was Lumberjack and Flying Canoes last year, Muskoka Plunge, Soaring Timbers. So we've been slowly working it in for the purpose of being able to launch. Frontier Canada finally, all these years later, and, you know, with its uh, flagship piece, the Yukon Striker. So how much room do you have left? (laughs) Uh, Quite a bit, actually. You'd be surprised. We're fortunate to have a lot of great green space here. Yeah. And I don't think we're ever going to be looking to get rid of it. No. um, because it's that's an that's an attraction I think for the for the park um, for that people to be able to walk through and have that nice experience as opposed to you know just a, a cement jungle so um, we're really looking to maintain that atmosphere um, but I think technically we have 380 acres in total I think and we've built out about 300 of them. Uh, when will you able to be, when will you be able to see this from the highway? Because that's always great advertising, especially you know when you see the Leviathan. Yeah, yeah, it may be faster than you think. Actually, um, the lift hill, which is the big hill that you go up at the beginning of the ride, which will be the tallest piece, it looks to be completed early fall. So. This is in a matter of weeks. We're going to be working on that and getting the cranes in to get that built up. And the people will definitely see it from the highway. Who owns the park now? Cedar Fair does. And we have, um, we have um, over a dozen uh, sister parks in the U.S. We're the only one here in Canada. Well, uh, unbelievable. I mean, when this place opened up way back in the 1980s, I, I know a lot of people said, ah, you know, it'll be around for a while and then the houses will take it over and that'll be it. But this is unbelievable to see the way you guys are continually expanding and, uh, and going after record-breaking coasters. Uh, good luck. Grace Peacock's been with us, Director of Communications for Canada's Wonderland. Uh, new coaster, the Yukon Striker, set to be ready spring of 2019. Grace, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Are you going to be the first one on it? Uh, probably one of the first for sure, and you know I'm going to be riding that over and over next year. <laughs> so, so you have a, do you have a problem with that? I mean, no, I mean, um, I've been on the Leviathan twice, and I, I swear it almost killed me. Yeah, no, but I will probably scream every time. <laughs> All right, Grace Peacock, Director of Communications, Canada's Wonderland. Good luck, Grace. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking, uh, we, we often talked on this show about health care and the cost to administer health care and what we can do to try to keep those costs under control. And especially in regard to technology and how it is changing the way we serve up healthcare. A new study from the Canadian Medical Association shows that not only are young adults frequent users of the healthcare system, but they are also more eager to adopt technology to manage their own health. The CMA warns that to address the generation, policy changes are urgently needed to scale up the adoption of technology in our healthcare system. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Jeff Blackmer is with us, Vice President, Medical Professional. Canadian Medical Association and on the line with us now. Jeff, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Thank you. So we've talked uh, many times on this show about the escalating costs of health care. Could millennials be the savior for helping us lower those health care costs through technology? Well, I think there's definitely some potential savings here. I mean, there's there's a lot of inefficiencies uh, in the system, as as we all know. And certainly, you know, increased uptake of technology perhaps isn't the, you know, the only answer. I think there's a lot of other things that need to be done. But it's definitely one thing I think that would address some of the inefficiencies that we have currently. So give us some examples. What are we talking about here? Yeah, so there's a few different examples. I mean, certainly one of the ones we talk about a lot in in medicine is what we call virtual care. And virtual care is any type of care that takes place outside of that sort of face-to-face doctor-patient interaction. So you can think about, you know, video platforms like FaceTime uh, or Skype. You can even think about things like, you know, email and, and text messaging. And what that does is it saves the patient a lot of time, first of all, because they don't have to drive to the doctor's office and then sit in a waiting room and then drive back home. So you've got, you know, increased productivity and less downtime. But also potentially, you know, it shortens the time for some of these appointments. It can cut waiting lists. You know, there's a number of advantages. But, you know, it's not a replacement for all types of uh, visits to the doctor or to the hospital. You know, it may, it may replace some of those interactions, but there's also circumstances where, you know, it's important, for example, for the doctor to do a physical examination. So, it, you know, again, it's, it's really a, a combination of, of solutions that we're looking at, but, but there are some potential technological things that could help us out. Playing devil's advocate here, uh, some may say it's like online shopping for food. I can't touch it. Uh, does there need to be that contact in the doctor's office? Yeah, well, sometimes there does. And, you know, there are certain types of interactions. So you can think about things like, for example, um, you know, prescription refills, where you don't necessarily have to do a physical examination every time the the patient comes in for a, a prescription refill, but you would for other types of interactions. One of the other really interesting findings that you just touched on was in fact, even even this generation that really embraces the use of technology, over two-thirds of them still said, in spite of that, the face-to-face, the personal connection with the physician was extremely important for their health care. So there's still a recognition that um, this idea of a human connection, of, of sharing information, you know, face-to-face in person is really very important when it comes to these, you know, these healthcare interactions. And and I think for people who have said, you know, that doctors and nurses and others are going to be replaced by robots or artificial intelligence, you know, in the future, I don't think that'll happen because I think it's, it's sort of part of the human condition that we need to connect with people. How is the younger generation different from the older generation when it comes to accepting this sort of care? Yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some interesting differences. So one of the things that we found uh, surprising, actually, was the number of interactions they have with the healthcare system every year, which is on average more than 11 times that they go see a healthcare provider a year. 
And we usually associate that type of a number with, you know, an older demographic. The, the key difference here, though, is the way that they interact with the system. So they're not looking for what we would think of as sickness care, where they, you know, have an illness and go in looking for someone to help them feel better. Actually, many of them already feel okay, but they want to maintain their health and well-being. So they're looking into things like wellness, whether that's within the medical system or, you know, things like yoga or meditation or mindfulness, these mm. types of things. So they're really looking for, you know, for information on this. The other interesting thing about the way that they use technology and interact with the system is that they're actually less concerned about privacy issues. And and certainly, you know, we see this, the classic example being Facebook, where, you know, you don't pay for the service with money, but you pay with your personal information and, and the companies monetize that. So that's an interesting sort of dynamic for a doctor or a nurse, because even if the patient isn't very concerned about their own privacy issues, we still are. You know, we have very stringent uh, laws and regulations around the way that we have to protect personal health information. So that's a, you know, that's a nuance that, that healthcare providers are going to have to pay attention to, you know, as this generation sort of moves through the system. Uh, your release says patients are ready for more technology. Canada's healthcare is not. How come? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, you know, we're a little bit ready. Um, you know, we've got some infrastructure in place around things like telehealth and telemedicine, um, you know, particularly given our geography and trying to serve patients in rural and remote areas. We have pockets of really good thing, things happening when it comes to things like electronic medical records and electronic health records. The problem is that those things are not universally available. So if you happen to, you know, be in a location where it's available, that's great. But it's certainly not, you know, pan-Canadian. And I'll give you an example. I work at the Ottawa Hospital, and we have a great patient information portal where patients can log on with, you know, for example, a mobile device and get access to their own healthcare information. If they go for a blood test in the morning, they can get the results by that afternoon. But that's not available everywhere. So the technology, you know, exists in pockets, but we need the funding and the policy changes to really scale that up. We certainly have talked in the past about uh, e-health and 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 the transition from paper, I guess, to to electronic record keeping and such, and 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 that was a bit of a whatever you want to call it. I guess depends who you ask. Uh, how do we move forward with this and and not and not I guess encounter the same hurdles? Yeah, that's still a real challenge for the medical profession, unfortunately. I mean, one of the things that happened early in the days of electronic medical records is we didn't spend enough time thinking about how they were going to connect with each other. And so, again, using my example in Ottawa, if I send someone to the Ottawa hospital for a, a chest x-ray, um, then I get the results immediately electronically. But if they decide to go to a, a private clinic in the community, I don't have access to that and they might, you know, try and fax it to me. And, you know, I think the medical profession is almost the only one still using fax machines. So, you know, we're actually sort of playing catch up in a lot of ways when it comes to these medical records, because we didn't think enough about how to connect those systems in the early days. And so now we've got this patchwork of vendors and providers and technology um, and so we're really trying to address it, you know, retrospectively. So there are, you know, federal and, and provincial organizations that are working to, to improve that interoperability, um, but it's, it's not going to happen, you know, anytime soon, unfortunately. Government on board with this? 
You know, government is on board. I think part of it is that when it comes to healthcare and other issues, there's a lot of competing priorities, and we certainly understand that. I mean, you know, you know, we've talked a lot about, for example, the need for home care to help patients age at home, and this doesn't, you know, lessen the importance of that. I, I think the selling point for this idea of increasing technology in medicine is that even though, you know, in this report we talk primarily about the Google generation, in fact, every generation, every demographic can benefit from having improved technology when it comes to uh, when it comes to healthcare, and so it's really worth the investment. And again, you know, back to this this example of someone trying to age at home rather than going into long term care, you can easily imagine examples where we could develop a mobile device for that patient to wear, where we could track you know heart rate and blood pressure and blood glucose and other parameters, where it could give us you know um, information about their location if they were someone who tended to wander. This could really cut down on the number of visits that they would have to make with a healthcare provider and keep them in their home longer. So ultimately, it gets back to the initial point that you made that there are, you know, some real savings to be had for the system if we make that, you know, that upfront investment. So government is listening. And, and I think there's, you know, a lot of pretty solid, solid rationale for why we do need to uh, to really, you know, think more carefully about about both the financial aspect, but also the policy aspect of, of increasing the investment in, in technology. It seems whenever we talk about uh, healthcare, Jeff, it's, it's wait times and, you know, if people can even get in to see a doctor, if they even have a, a personal uh, physician, does this help? It could, it could. And, and, and again, back to this idea of virtual visits, you know, you can really imagine if, if we set up a good framework around, you know, what's an appropriate virtual visit when, you know, patients should see the doctor or communicate with the doctor virtually, and we could build that in as a routine part of medical care, which, you know, frankly, I think is really inevitable, and it's more a question of timing. You could easily imagine how doctors could see, you know, more patients in a day, could open up their practices, we could decrease wait times, um, so the potential is absolutely there. It's just a matter of, of, you know, how quickly we can make some of these changes. I was talking to a colleague in Toronto yesterday who said, you know, I, I would love to make, um, you know, FaceTime visits a part of my practice, but my hospital won't let me because they're concerned about some of the medical legal implications. Mm-hmm. And so we're just not there yet, even for doctors and patients who are who are ready to take this up. So, you know, we've really got to start doing some work pretty quickly. You talked earlier on that, uh, and, and how this whole started was uh, younger people, younger generation millennials are, are more uh, likely to buy into something like this. Is it the same with doctors? The younger doctors are in, the olders aren't. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's not so much that the olders aren't, but it, it's, it's like any generation of medicine. You know, what you learn in, in medical school and residency right. becomes, you know, what you practice in medicine. And so, you know, you look back generations ago, it was antibiotics, and we had to teach, you know, the older doctors about antibiotics. So anytime you get new things coming into medicine, and that happens continually, which is, which is part of the fascination of medicine, um, you know, if you're a doctor who's been in practice longer, you need you know, more help and support. And, and, and to be fair, that's part of our job as the Canadian Medical Association is really to, to support, um, you know, colleagues who have been in practice longer. You know, there's a lot of, for example, medical apps out there, mobile devices, different platforms. It's really hard to keep up with that. So, so we need to, you know, as an organization, make sure that we're keeping on the cutting edge and that we're helping our members understand, you know, what would work from their perspective in the clinic, because it's really hard to know, you know, what to recommend to patients and, and what to adopt for yourself. So what's next here, Jeff? What, what happens to this report? 
Yeah, so there's two things. Number one is that we're going to be spending a lot of time talking to the policymakers and the funders. And, uh, you know, I think that's really the first step is to say, look, you know, both at the provincial and the federal level, we really need to think about um, how this fits into overall policy development. And it, it won't be a new conversation, but perhaps it will give it a little bit of added urgency. And then the second part is, just as I alluded to, we really need to figure out as a profession, you know, how to move this forward. And so as, as one example, the Canadian Medical Association has our annual meeting in Winnipeg next week. And the, the overarching theme of that meeting is essentially technology and medicine and how we can make better use of it. So, um, you know, as a profession, all of us, regardless of our demographic, you know, really need to get on board with this and make sure that we're ready for these changes. Dr. Jeff Blackmer has been with us, Vice President of Medical Professionalism, Canadian Medical Association, a new study from the CMA showing that uh, not only are young people frequent users of the healthcare system, but more eager to adopt technology in managing their own health. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.